Hello and welcome back to the airwaves, the space waves, the subspace waves of subspace.fm. It's Subspace Radio, Rob. We're back. It's been far too long. It has been. I forgot how this show started. That's how long it's been. <laughs> there was a promise at the end of our last episode that possibly there would be a discovery discussion. That has not happened yet. There's still time. Yeah, I'm holding off to the last possible minute for me to indulge in the last season of Discovery before we go to the very last. There's still time because Discovery Season 5 is still off there in the later this year date to be named future. And also, no spoilers at all, but as has always been true of Discovery, I suspect Season 5 is going to be a brand new thing. And it's not going to matter if you've seen Season 4 or not. That is what I'm tipping. That sounds a lot like Discovery that I know. Yeah. (laughs) But we're not here to talk about Discovery. We've got a new episode of Strange New Worlds. Rob, this is the show that made us start Subspace Radio. This is where it all started, Kevin. We are here and we're actually reviewing a whole season of Strange New Worlds. Not coming in two thirds of the way through. Although maybe we should have is my immediate, without tipping my hand, my preview thought about what I thought of this episode. Maybe we jinxed it. I was I was watching it and I'm there going, there are things here that I know Kevin Yank will not like that we touched on from conversations when we saw the original trailers oh, come yes. out for this and stuff. So yeah. <laughs> so Strange New World, season two, episode one, The Broken Circle. I don't know about you, Rob, but I did a rewatch of season one in the week leading up to this so that I was fresh. And I have to say, season one is even better the second time around. I just bought my copy on Blu-ray, but then I just discovered that in regions other than Australia, you can get it in beautiful 4K. Okay, yeah. So I have ordered I did more. the US import, yes. I'm getting the UK import, so I will have both the Blu-ray and the 4K version. And just while we're talking tech specs here of our Star Trek, I have to say, this first episode of season two of Strange New Worlds appeared... First of all, it appeared... A day earlier than Star Trek normally has been in Australia, usually they make the Australian region wait a day from its original airing in the U.S. This time it came out pretty much day and date. It came out within hours of it dropping in the U.S., which was great. Thumbs up to that. Thumbs down, unfortunately. The soundtrack was in stereo only. Yes. Huge first world problem here. But for those (laughs) of us who like to hear our starships swoop across the room... It was a, I was like, what? have I got the setting wrong? No, the Paramount Plus, although it had HDR video, the soundtrack was stereo only. And in this episode, there were certain scenes where it was kind of hard to understand what people were saying and having all of that dialogue crushed into just those two channels was not helping matters. I'm glad you brought that up because it was an issue for me. So I had to put up the subtitles just to, so, because some things were missing and there was, the mix Mm. for me was all over the shop because of my non-stereo screen that I was playing off. But we're Mm -hmm. back. It came in with the swagger of a 1950s or early 1960s American college footballer. It was coming in cocky. It was coming in confident. It was coming in strong. All I could say is they showed their money in the first 
two or three oh. minutes. Oh, that shuttle voyage around the space station was, oh, I was going, I can't tell what's different here, but this is a different portal into the Star Trek universe. It feels more real. It feels more tangible in some respects. I don't know if it was just the shaky cam, the virtual lens they chose to shoot that vista through, but... I felt the G-forces of that shuttle swooping around that starship in a way that we're not used to seeing. And we have seen that space station before. It's not... It is the Enterprise's home base for this entire series. It's yeah, There's been entire episodes set there, but we never got the grand tour like we got here. We saw, uh, yeah, very different type of biospheres and all that type mm. of stuff. So it's not like Space Dock from the original movies and from Picard, especially season three. But it gave us a little bit of a whirlwind tour in all its glorified CGI money shot of... Um, that conference of, uh, room with the ships in the background, I have to say that has got to be a, quite a like a meeting power move to roll in with your ship, park it in the distance there, and then walk in and go, oh yeah, that old thing <laughs> over my shoulder, that's my <laughs> enterprise. <laughs> but um, yeah, we are back and they've done the brave and ballsy move of our lead character, our lead actor, our captain pretty much going AWOL in even before the title sequence. Yeah, I appreciate them going, okay, we know you love Pike, but we're going to make you wait for Pike for an episode, and we're going to spend a day with our other characters mm -hmm. here and see how they work together without Papa of the Bridge. Papa Hairquiff. Yeah. <laughs> and I applaud the attempt, but I really did... I did miss Pike's presence, especially in a season premiere that is going to kick off the new season. I loved it. I loved it. So I'll be in the camp of, I loved it. I really embraced it. Um, I like what they're doing. I like what, what new depths they're bringing to some characters. So Mbenga, who was defined by the tragedy of his daughter last season, they're actually yeah, gone. I'm glad they're finding something new for him. Yeah. And I, there more there to, was that worry there. And adding more to Chapel, which I really liked. Ethan Peck for me is going from strength to strength. Some incredibly beautiful sequences and shots. There were some, for me, some unnecessary shots that kind of were a bit ridiculous that have been commented in some reviews as being really good. And I was a bit, it's slow motion doesn't, or isn't always your friend. And <laughs> I'll just finish off by saying Carol friggin' Kane. Uh huh. I have adored Carol Kane since I was, since I could understand what a performance was and everything she has done is incredible. And the energy she has brought to the show, that new life we we're talking about, the freshness of someone who's been in the industry over, over 30, 40 years. She, oh, my gosh, she's amazing. <laughs> I am not an avowed Carol Kane fan, but I do agree. Like she is bringing something fresh. Like <laughs> I, I can't tell if I like it or not yet, but it is new. And I don't mind my Star Trek challenging me. And Carol Kane's presence on that bridge is definitely challenging me. <laughs> this is the thing. It's a weird thing because there are similarities, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, of when Anson Mount jumped on set for the first episode of season two of Discovery. He just brought a fresh new mm. energy and breath of fresh air that just broke out of the stuffiness and the internalization drama that was like yeah. season one of Discovery. And he just brought this cool energy and everyone on the bridge introduced themselves and we all went, 
Oh, yeah. We didn't know any of these people for an entire season. Thanks for fixing that, Anson Mount. <laughs> in, in her own inimitable fashion, with her own weird, incredible accents, like she did in Taxi, like she's done in Scrooged and every other performance that she has done, she brought in that same type of energy, the stuffiness and the we're too cool for school nerds that is uh -huh. the new, this Enterprise crew. She just comes in and just blows it out of the water. And I love that almost anarchistic energy that she's bringing, but that's me because I'm already in her court. So it'll be interesting to see how we both evolve with our opinions of the character. Yes, indeed. I have to say, I came away from this episode a bit cold. Mm -hmm. um, there were long moments where Mbenga and Chapel were punching up Klingons in the hallway where I was sitting there bored and going, is this the Star Trek I've been looking forward to? It was shot really badly. Those fight sequences were shot really badly and they stayed. Yeah, it, they felt twice as long as they were. Yeah, they and they stayed far too long in slow motion on sections where you could see the choreography and you could see mm. the holding back and the shifts and they're going, that's bad editing, that's bad shooting. Mm. That, that's not the actor's fault. The actors came across as looking ridiculous because they weren't looked after by their director and editor. Yes, I will agree with all of that and go further and say that a story of doctors stuck behind enemy lines being resolved by let's pump ourselves full of bloodlust juice and punch all the Klingons, that is not the kind of story that I think Star Trek is setting out to tell. It, it does... feels to me like a lazy, let's put some action on the screen proposal that, that I wish they had taken a second crack at that part of the script. Look, both actors are incredibly talented in, yeah. in, in, as actors, but it takes a certain yeah. skill and it's just not something you can throw yourself into to do fight choreography, stunt choreography and stuff like that. They did let down their actors here just to haven't they ever thought heard of a jeffries tube that's done it's been done over 50 years as a way of getting out multiple times they're on a false federation ship go up a jeffries tube guys and you don't even need to go in slow motion for that yeah there was the slow motion there was the moment that they lifted up the floor of the corridor in order to jump down to the deck below and the camera for some reason flipped upside down so that they jumped up through the frame and then it flipped upside down again, so they landed feet down on the floor below. And the flipping, I was like, oh, are they like going into a floor that has reverse gravity? What Maybe. is the camera trying to tell us here? And then they landed on one floor down with the same gravity. And I was like, oh, the camera's not trying to tell us anything. They just are trying to make it exciting <laughs> by flipping the camera around. There were a lot of moments of definitely style over substance. And that was a moment that mm. I stood out and I went, you're just trying to do something that looks cool as opposed to that things have been done before in other genre shows where they use camera trickery or camera things like that to, like you said, tell a story and give a justification. But this was just put in to look cute and to look impressive and it didn't justify yeah. anything. There was a moment later on when the Enterprise was attacking the fake Federation ship and just how the camera moved for the Enterprise to be upside down. That type of beautiful yep. change of gravity perspective stuff is great and lovely and perfect. I'm going, do more of that as yep. opposed to, that was just really stood out for me as a, a director trying to show themselves to be clever and not really servicing the plot. 
So yeah, I saw that as well. Yeah, lots of highs and lows this episode. And in general, I thought the action beats left me cold. They did not quite work as well as they were intended. Mm. A lot of the character beats worked really well, though. Yeah. And once Mbenga and Chapel got cornered in that airlock Great and stuff. made the decision to jump out into space... And they were like, we've gotten out of situations worse than this. And she goes, no, not not really. really, And I was like, then I was there with them. Yes, me too. I was there with those characters. And it felt like they were sharing a moment. And the drama of Spock. Oh, my God. Spock at the end, cheersing the blood wine. (laughs) Yar! Just like a Klingon was hilarious. All of that stuff worked. And it wasn't robotic. And it wasn't like emotionless and stuff like that. Mbenga said it, and it's been said before, Vulcans feel emotions more than humans and they use these techniques to suppress it. That's why the Romulans Mm. don't, because Romulans are the twin race of them. But you can see the emotion is there, but he's just, it's controlled in the surface. I went, that's, yeah, that's another tip of the hat. When Nimoy would go, well done. It was this beautiful, ah, yes, indeed, I will have more wine, blood wine. (laughs) What are the things that you thought, Kev's not going to like those? Oh, it was the one that they talked about in the trailer of Spock saying, I would like the ship to go now. And they, but there's, it was just built in the trailer, but there's a whole thing around it. And I'm there going, okay, this is becoming far too self-aware. Yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. It was almost a scene that you'd expect to see in Lower Decks. And that would be appropriate Boimler and Mariner talking about that type of stuff. And Mara with the sleeves rolled up going, mine will be gun, gun, guns, pew, pew, pew. But yeah, came across as there was Star Trek nerds talking about it, but they were trying to do it as they were Starfleet nerds talking about it. And yeah. so that was for me, that was the swagger of a 1950s quarterback going, we can do this, man. We're the flagship show. We can be, we can steal from everything and we can do all this. And I went, that's great kid, but don't get cocky. Yeah, all of that is true. And also, we have seen this beat in three successive seasons of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Like every show in every season, at some point now, has someone new sit in a captain's chair. And then we have the scene where it's, are you going to say a thing? And it's done. It's done. It's like, it's past funny. Yes. It's past not funny. It's just cringing. Three types of shows are doing it now. And now it's a thing. And it never was a thing. But that was it a never cool... worked. It didn't even work the first time. No, it was cool when you didn't mention it. It was cool when yeah. it, you and we just go, yeah, that's really cool. And now they're making it a thing. And it's going, it really is. They are becoming quintessential Star Trek nerds going, oh, no, you just by bringing it up, you don't really know what cool is and you're making it worse. But, but yeah, I've been singing these praises, but the getting back to that, those character beats you look talking about where they're really good at. Like the, the pressure and the tension and the decisions he had to make as a captain of their waiting. And he's there going, I need to fire these torpedoes. Be, but I know. And the fear and the tears and the. And in- chapels on that ship. Yeah. <laughs> and that moment when he comes and he's there going, I waited for you. And you're there going. Yeah, yeah. And at the end where he's there going, I can't, desc- I don't know how to describe how I'm feeling right now. You're there going, this is it. This is good. This is what- I love the swings they're taking because they could be playing it so safe. The fact that we know where these characters end up mm-hmm. later could be prompting such conservative, careful, let's not disturb the canon storytelling. But instead, they're taking giant swings that are painting those future events in new lights. But 
yeah, do it. Take those big risks. Definitely. Uh, as a as an opposite example that I'm going to bring up in a moment proves safe Star Trek is not good Star Trek. <laughs> One detail I did notice was they mentioned the rogue ship was a crossfield class ship, which yes. is the class of Discovery. Yes, it and did look a little bit Discovery. The saucer was definitely a Discovery saucer. The back end was a completely different thing. It had Enterprise-style engines yes. slung low with a triangle secondary hull. But the well, dish. not triangle, but more of a like a V-shaped secondary hull vertically. So the back end looks completely different from Discovery, yes. which we're told is also a crossfield class. So either there are several ways we can justify this for ourselves, and I haven't decided which one I believe yet. We could say... Well, Discovery's back end was modified for the Spore Drive, that it was a modified crossfield class. And the only other crossfield class we've seen was the Glen, which is a ship that kind of twisted itself inside out experimentally in the second episode of Discovery. And that they were also doing Spore Drive research on that ship. So the two Spore Drive crossfields had the big giant back end. Maybe that's it. The other thing we could say is this was assembled from parts. When they scanned it, the computer went crossfield. It's got a crossfield saucer. Don't know what the rest is. We'll call it crossfield. So maybe it was a Frankenstein crossfield. That's what I was thinking as well. Yeah. So yes, I would sum it up as an episode of highs and lows. There are things that I loved as much as anything else we've gotten in Strange New Worlds so far. But overall, I kind of... I stood up at the end of that episode and went, that was a bit disappointing. Um, no. And I think it was just because all the pieces didn't quite come together into a satisfying way. Or that prolonged action sequence at the middle of the episode, um, everything that was connected to that suffered as a result. Uh, the core, the, the glue that stuck all the nice pieces together was not to my taste. Yeah. For me, I could, yeah, I think the whole was greater than the sum of its parts. Um, I was happy to have it back. It was, I enjoyed having focus on our ensemble and the confidence they're having and that family coming back and uh, looking forward to next week. And we were gifted that focus by Anson Mout stepping out of the spotlight for one episode. And that is the theme we chose for our delve into Star Trek history this what episode. What a segue. We are going to explore other times the captain has stepped away and made room for other characters. And I don't know about you, Rob, but I had a real hard time finding other examples of that. Look, today has been a day. Normally we have ourselves about a week to find topics and stuff. And yeah. I am uh, chin deep in the end of my term at school. So we're doing reports at the moment. Oh no, I'm sorry to do this to you. Oh no, not at all. Are you kidding me? I was looking forward to getting home Friday evening and watching Star Trek to just send off the week. But today has been a day of Rewatching Strange New Worlds episode one, hunting desperately to find episodes that relate to the topic that that Francine here came up with, and and finish <laughs> and finishing off my reports. So I have found my equivalent of it. Look, I'm kind of happy with what I came up with, and as we've established before, there are no rules. Pick an episode <laughs> of Star Trek and tell me why you love it. That's what I'm here exactly. for. Exactly. So I'm going to go first with the original series, hey. Season 3, Episode 9, The Tholian Web. And as we know, Season 3 of the original series is, uh, it, 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 is a, it is a rough ride, put it that mm -hmm. way. But here in episode nine, for me, is a bright spot. Much like this week's episode of Strange New Worlds, there are things about it that don't quite work. It's a little rough around the edges. But the Tholian Web is an 
excellent episode. It's a classic episode of Star Trek because it is one of, if not the only time, where Kirk, William Shatner, steps out of the limelight and we get to see what his crew and what specifically Spock and Bones have as a relationship without him. So much is made of that triangle that like the three of them work so well together that that Bones is the heart, Spock is the brain, and and Kirk is... Is the groin. (laughs) The groin, absolutely. (laughs) Whatever metaphor you prefer, that the three of them, like they support each other's strengths and flaws perfectly. And when you take one of those away, what is left? And what is left in the Tholian web is a very dysfunctional relationships. So at the start of Tholian web, there's a transporter accident. Kirk is presumed lost. Spock does some science and goes, here's how we can get him back. The science fails. And then Spock is convinced that Kirk is lost. And so they hold a memorial service where Spock gets up in front of the crew and he does a typically Spock job of memorializing a crew member. He basically says, look, I can't tell you what he meant to you. You all need to figure that out for yourselves. Let's bow our heads in silence. That's pretty much it. Thanks, Spock. I would like you to mourn now. Uh, Pretty much the moment Kirk disappears, Bones seems suspicious and he outright accuses Spock on several occasions once on the bridge in front of the bridge crew of relishing this opportunity to rise to the captaincy off the back of his friend's death. And Bones is plotting Spock's downfall because he thinks Spock does not deserve the captain's chair. And they, this is the ugliest, I think, in the entire series that the two of them get Mm. to each other. And Spock does... A marvelous job of just like water off a duck's back. But he is this the kind of stone face that you know it's hurting him inside. Yeah. And then there is a beautiful scene where they go to Kirk's quarters to watch the final message. They're like, in the event of my death, open this envelope sort of message. And they watch it and Kirk basically says, look, Spock, you're in command now. You're going to have to make some tough calls I've always believed that part of being a captain is operating from instinct. And if you can't find that in yourself, go and look to Bones. I've found him a great source of counsel, and he can be that for you when you can't be that for yourself. And Bones, Spock is captain now. You need to respect that. You need to do (laughs) what he says. But also realize that even Spock is capable of human error and human weakness. Not even Spock is immune to that, and you need to support him when he needs it. And they both look at each other and go, I'm so sorry, and apologize to each other and mourn Kirk's passing in their own moments. Eventually, of course, they rescue Kirk. And then Kirk says, in the final moments on the bridge before the end of the episode, Kirk's like, so um, I hope my final orders were helpful. And they both look at each other and go, what final orders? Oh, sorry. So much was going on. We didn't have time to watch them. And they pretend not to have seen them. And Kirk's like, oh, I put a lot of work into that. Oh, well. And that's the move to the credits. But yeah, a lovely episode, the Tholian Web. That's a good one. That's it a, is. That's yeah, yeah, pretty much captain's away because he'd be almost dead. <laughs> okay. For me, mining my, my beautiful version of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which has become my won't to do. I found uh-huh. out that, of course, Avery Brooks did every single episode of Deep Space Nine. Um, of course he did. 
I was on Google going, what episodes did Patrick Stewart direct? Because he's probably not in those a lot. And even the one that like Avery Brooks directed, like he took the lead in as well. So you're there of going. Of course he did. Of course he did. Of course he did. Of course he did. So I had to look at what type of episodes could be considered that Cisco light episode. And I've tried searching uh -huh. that and, and Google let me down. I knew what I could rely on because I'm a Deep Space Nine fan. So they always were good value and they would be a Cisco light episode. A lot of fans took a while to like them. Not many fans like them within the franchise, but I love them. So I looked at the Ferengi episodes. Yeah. Classic episodes where you knew that Cisco would be in the background. He'd probably pop in at the start for a little, or he'd be there as the, with a sage bit of advice at the end. So I'll look at a little bit Family Business, which is season three, mm -hmm. episode 23, directed by René Bourgeois, written by Ira Stevenberg and Robert Wolf. And so that's the first time they actually go to Ferenginar. And that's why you find out the deeply misogynistic capitalistic culture that is Ferenginar to the extent of it. Is this the one where we meet Moogie? This is where we meet Moogie for the first time. And Moogie is a wonderful creation, a beautiful, beautiful performance by Andrea Martin. It's just, yeah. And she stays with the show then on. And so how she defines Quark and Rom is a great episode. And we get deeper knowledge of the Ferengi culture. That's what I love about Deep Space Nine is they took that time to, as opposed to going from planet to planet. We found out we could constantly go back to Ferenginar. We could constantly go to Bajor, to Cardassia, and find out more about these cultures as opposed to just what special bumps we have on the eyebrows and the bridge of the nose this week. Yeah, it's like these characters in a pressure cooker on a space station. Make them bump into each other in every which way that you can imagine. Then when you need a little more grist for that mill, send them back to their home worlds. Get a, a top up of what makes them them. Exactly. And then bring them back. So that's a beautiful setup that you have. It makes it difficult to find a Captain's Away episode because Cisco's <laughs> always at the damn ship. So it's a great episode to to get introduced to it. that deeper knowledge of of Quark's backstory and an introduction of Moogie, who is just a wonderful character and then where Rom starts becoming a regular character. And as a side note in the B story with Cisco, Cassie Yates appears for the first time, played by the brilliant Penny Johnson. Oh, wow. But the other episode that I'll sort of like refer to in this block is a much more well-regarded episode from season four, episode eight, Little Green Men, which we've touched on a little bit before. And that's just an iconic yeah. episode, time travel as well. Where, yes, um, a little remembered time travel episode. Yeah, and it's a, another Captain Away. You get Cisco a little bit at the end, but it's Rom and Quark are taking Nog to Earth because he's joining up with the Federation, the first Ferengi to do so. Um, they get wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff, and they get sent back to Roswell, 1949, and they're the justification of the alien invasion. And of course, Odo stows away with them, and it gets caught up in it, and. Quark gets arrested at the end. So it, this is a out and out classic. This is one of the better remembered episodes and one of the highly regarded episodes of Deep Space Nine and is always up there with some of the best episodes of Star Trek television directed by James Conway and story by Tony Marbury and Jack Trevino. So those are two episodes that I was kind of like, just wanted to mention and drop and just how great they are showing the Ferengi culture in different situations, one more of a family drama, the other one, the Ferengi comedy elements brought in this iconic time travel episode. Yeah, 
I love how both of those are great examples of without our normal cast members around, particularly the captain, mm. what does a character like Quark become? Like what face is Quark putting on at all times because Cisco's got his eye on him? <laughs> or Odo, when you yeah. take that away in one situation or another, what does Quark become? So yeah, great uh, adventures to go on with him there. I'm going to go back and watch The Little Green Men because I, I literally remember almost nothing except military uniforms and it was in Roswell, New Mexico. And so I've got to rewatch that one. It's a really good one. It's a really fun one. Mm. And Armin Shimmerman is one of the greatest gifts in Deep Space Nine. And him working off Renee Bougenoir is great. Yeah, just that expanding on the characters that we have, expanding on how they deal with situations. And this is like the birth of the almost anti-hero within Star Trek. These are Ferengis who are seen as going to be the major threat before the Borg were introduced into Next Generation. And how from a race of beings who come from such a misogynistic, such a capitalistic culture, how can we actually learn to empathize with these characters and how can they evolve being a part of our culture as well. It's a great magic trick when you can take <laughs> like an objectively unlikable character trait and put it on a character that we've learned to love. And then that's a challenge to the audience. So yeah, my second episode is I went looking for a TNG. I looked real hard for a time that Captain Picard left the Enterprise and people were left behind. I mean, we've already talked about chain of command fairly extensively mm -hmm. when they're sent away on that mission, but we also go with Picard in that episode. And that's what's happened again and again is when Picard leaves the Enterprise, we tend to go with Picard <laughs> rather than stay behind. There's a captain's holiday where he goes to Risa, but we spend the bulk of that episode on Risa with Captain Picard. Not really any great examples there for TNG, but that did send me to Risa where I found an episode of Star Trek Enterprise. And I think I am going to make a note to myself for future episodes of Subspace Radio is that if we're going to talk about Enterprise, we should talk about it in canonical order before TOS, because inevitably the Enterprise episodes, they're not that great. <laughs> there are some good Enterprise episodes. I struggle to think of any great Enterprise episodes with all apologies and respect to the people who worked really hard on that series. Well, there's got to be. There's got, like, this is what the internet was born for. Best three Enterprise episodes. Yeah, nerd, nerds making lists of what the best episodes are. There's got to be a list out there on Den of Geek or somewhere that says these are the best. The, if you're going to watch any Enterprise episode, these are the ones to watch. So that's what I can watch. This is not one of them, and it is uh, Star Trek Enterprise Season 1, Episode 25, Two Days and Two Nights, in which the Enterprise visits Risa for the first time, and the crew draws lots to see who will be allowed to go down to Risa for, uh, for shore leave and who gets to stay behind. And Captain Archer goes down to Risa, and because he is a stick in the mud, he gets a private hotel suite and decides to lay in the sun and read a book with his dog for his holiday. But what that means is that everyone else goes off and has fun without him. And so it is kind of a when the captain's away yeah. episode in part because the other people partying on Risa don't have a captain around, so they get to let it all hang out. Woohoo! There are a few people left behind on the ship, notably T'Pol, 
our Vulcan first officer, and Dr. Phlox, who decides to take the occasion to go into one of his long hibernations, where he mostly doesn't sleep, except when he does, he sleeps a real lot. So he decides to sleep for two full days. And so he takes an injection and says, don't wake me up unless there's an emergency. And of course, there's an emergency, wah, wah. which leads to, I will call it a clown routine. The scene where T'Pol and Ensign Cutler have to wake up Phlox from his torpor in order to treat a suffocating Travis Mayweather in, in sickbay who fell off of a rock wall climbing. This scene where they wake him up and he's just sleep drunk and talking nonsense. The funniest line is... I don't care what it tastes like. He's just <laughs> lying in bed with his eyes closed, sh shouting that. This gives me an excuse to re reference a YouTube channel that I highly recommend called Ryan's Edits, where he does this series of videos called Star Trek Intakes. And this guy has managed to source from little birdies inside Paramount unreleased bloopers from all the various Star Trek series and he edits them back into the original scenes. He matches like the color grading, he matches the sound and it and then he allows the scene to play out with the blooper in it as if that was what the character did. I will not explain it further for fear of ruining the joke, but there a couple of weeks ago there was a excellent intake posted of this very scene of waking up flocks from his hibernation where none of the other cast members could keep a straight face as he was shouting nonsense from his bed so go and watch that instead of watching this episode he's a wonderful actor john billingsley he's great i'm watch currently watching at the moment the man from earth which is a mm. infamous bottle episode type of movie and Billingsley's in it, and he's great. He's such a wonderful actor. I love seeing those heavily made-up actors yeah, stretch their stretch their acting chops without the makeup on. It's a high point of this episode that otherwise is fairly forgettable because of the same reasons that I find Enterprise in general fairly forgettable. This was Star Trek playing its safest. Going back to what I was saying here about Strange New Worlds, about even when it's not working, it's not working because they took a big swing. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, one of those risks doesn't pay off. But here in the early 2000s, Star Trek was, I feel like, playing it safe. They were at the end of 10 years of Star Trek on TV continuously, and they were afraid to break the franchise. And this is, I think, what ultimately sunk Enterprise as a series and had it not get its full seven seasons is they like they were painted into a corner in every respect. They were doing a prequel so that they couldn't break any of the canon. And it was it was network television, prime time, so they couldn't do anything risky with characters or story for fear of upsetting the advertisers. This episode is an example of that. You send these characters off to Risa, and ostensibly they get themselves into trouble, but the trouble they get themselves into is such a watered-down vanilla variety. Tucker and Reed go into a bar as tourists and they're like, we hear this is where all the sexy ladies in, in Risa hang out. So we'll just sit at this table and wait for someone to proposition us. And sure enough, two sexy ladies show up and say, ooh, we'd love to show you the secret gardens of Risa. And they allow themselves to be led into a basement where they get mugged for their communicators or whatever and wake up the next morning in their underwear and have to shamefully scurry out to, to find a communication station to get back to the ship. That's the kind of trouble they get themselves into this episode. Yeah, we've talked about it before, like with Voyager was 
trying to do this brave new thing about taking it outside of their comfort zone into the Delta Quadrant. And like we talked about, there's this whole arc that they could establish and create about limited resources, limited crew members and stuff like that. But they fall back on the old routine. And I'm not sure if it's a reaction to because Deep Space Nine didn't really, even though it went for seven seasons, didn't hit that same mark as Next Generation because at that time in the late 90s, doing such big arc season work was revolutionary and is now embraced by streamers and television viewers, but it was a bit too avant-garde back in that time. So maybe the lessons they learned were wrong and they won't, let's play it safe. And because Enterprise could have been so interesting. They didn't have the universal translator. There's only limited space and all this type of stuff. But like you said, they went, we'll give the impression that it's big and new, but we'll just play it safe. The only daring thing they do is what they do with the opening credits. And Mm. if that's a risk, it's not worth taking. Yeah, it's so easy to say in hindsight, but I think you're right that the response to, oh, we don't have as many viewers as we used to is let's be more cautious instead yeah. of let's be take bigger risks. Let's try and be more like what those shows were, the show was that got us this success in the first place and fundamentally take away from what is unique about that actual specific spinoff. And it's not even writing it like Next Generation, they're just doing these safe generic type of story plot lines that you could see in any show, any procedural show, any cop show, any drama show that doesn't stand out as anything unique, which is such a shame. Okay. My final episode, like you were talking about is how our characters cope without that safety blanket of a Picard or a Cisco. And we're going to one of Bashir's finest moments and one of the most really deeply depressing powerful episodes. We're going season four, episode 23, The Quickening, where Bashir, Dax, and Kira are sent on a mission and they arrive on a plague-ridden planet in the Gamma Quadrant, where the Jen'Hadar have punished the residents of that planet for defying and not joining the Dominion by poisoning the entire planet. And it's lethal. It slowly it appears in like spider-like lesions on your body. And when it is inflamed and takes you over, that's called the quickening and there's no cure and, and you die slowly and horribly. And Bashir is there trying to find a cure. Everyone else leaves, but he stays and he makes a connection with a young pregnant woman who is inflicted by it. And she sadly dies, but he helps the child live. And with the medicine that he's trying inside in the pregnant woman, the baby is, has the cure. So the baby is not affected by the quickening. So what that means is they can, they can give this vaccine to the mothers who will die, but their children will live and the next generation will not have this disease. And he comes back at the end and he's given all this praise and stuff. And Cisco's there as the guiding figure to go, you have done an incredible job, what you've done for these people and just the loss and the, what was lost to get some sort of hope and what that means as a doctor for Bashir is a powerful episode. It's directed by Renard Bourgeois, so knocking out of the park again. And that's Mm. that almost safety blanket of having Cisco around is gone in this and Bashir really steps up. And it's incredible performance. I remember this one being gut-wrenching. It was 
20 something years ago now, but I remember the first time I watched this episode on the day it aired and getting to the end of it and going, that wasn't a happy ending. It was that twist the knife happy ending. Bashir saved the day, but we're all left devastated. By it's so, I, yeah, I remember watching it for the first time and like when I've gone back to rewatch it in my watch of the whole season, it's one you just go, oh, can I skip ahead? And you can't, yep. it's yep. riveting and it, everyone is firing on all cylinders. And despite the fact it's 1996 budget television with filmed out on location in somewhere in Southern California or whatever, but the script knocks it out of the park. The direction is knocked out of the park. The actors are in fine form and it just brings it. This is what I want to see when our doctors are stuck in a situation. This is the kind of story I want to see, not let's punch all the Klingons. I think the raid Daredevil have a lot to answer for where they've created this mm. whole new technique of the one shot or corridor fight scene that has been brought into yeah. so many TV. And that's what they were trying to do in this, I think, but yeah. it was shot by, it looks like someone who has never done a choreographed fight scene on film before. If they have, mm. I'm, I take that back, but it looked very amateur, but yeah, so that was my it's, yeah, I'm ending on a very sour note, but a very sad note, but it's... It, it no, but I dare say it might be the best episode of Star Trek we've talked about today. Pretty much, yeah. My, yeah, yeah, quite easily. Mm -hmm. It's a powerful episode. Make sure you've got a... Maybe watch uh, Little Green Men after it. All right. Well, I can't wait to see where Pike has gone and who this amazing lawyer is he's going to bring back to save number one is next week. Look, Star Trek is back on TV and we get to talk about it again. It's been far too long and I look forward to getting back into it next week. See you around. See you around the galaxy.